Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Good morning, friends. My name is Josh. I serve on staff here at Icon. So uh, this week we are continuing on in our series on Romans called uh, Straight No Chaser. So historically, Romans has been identified as Paul's most theologically rich letter in the New Testament. And we're trying to show that part of its richness is due to the fact that Paul pulls no punches that he does not soften the blow for some of the more difficult truths he's teaching, and uh, that, that really sets up the richness of Romans, bringing the comfort and the relief of the gospel later throughout. But for today, we are in one of those sections in Romans in which Paul does not soften the blow. So, so far in, in Romans, we've covered chapter 1, just Paul's clarity on the gospel and its power. We've seen Paul admit and, and indict the Gentiles for the ways in which the Gentile world has exchanged the glory of God for images resembling mortal man and all other kinds of things. Uh, this has provoked the passive wrath of God that Justin talked about last week, where he removes his hand from protecting these people and lets them run full headlong into their sin, into the collision with their sin and the collateral damage that it brings. And so, as Justin showed last week, at this point in the letter, the Jews had to be thinking, Paul's playing into our hand. Paul knows, Paul understands, he, Paul seems to be playing into the prejudices that we have against these Gentiles, and they're getting hyped up, they're getting excited that Paul is supporting uh, their prejudice against these godless Gentiles. But, towards the end of chapter 1, Paul begins to make just kind of a subtle change in his direction, and the Jews begin to get just a little bit uncomfortable. So Paul expands his indictment away from just the, the typically Gentile-like sins and says that these people who he's beginning to indict now are also full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, wait a second, who knows God's righteous decree? The Jews do. Paul has, in this backdoor kind of way, snuck in and included the Jews in the audience that he's indicting in this list of sins, and the tension in the room just begins to escalate. And that tension of conviction is only going to get worse in our text today, which is Romans 2. What was at first a, a subtle shift toward indicting the Jews is going to become a full-blown decimation of every reason the Jews in this Roman church think that they have superiority over the Gentiles. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to, we're going to cover all of Romans 2. And in order to do that, we're kind of going to take a look at what Paul is saying throughout the text and almost do kind of a, a running commentary on the text. And then, then we're going to lean in with a few questions. So let's read. Therefore, Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Okay, so right out of the gate, just a quick accusation, hypocrisy. Paul has already brought the Jews under the, under the indictment of chapter 1, verses 28 through 30, 32, like I talked about. So he's making clear that what he's actually going to go after the Jews for, what he's really going to call them to the floor on, is hypocrisy. 
He's going to lay all throughout chapter 2 the reasons why the Jews have no leg to stand on in their judgment of the Gentiles because they themselves are guilty of the very same things. So that's just out of the gate. Quick accusation, hypocrisy. Let's keep reading. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The Jews know this. Paul knows that they know this. Paul is stating something that his Jewish audience would have agreed with, that God's judgment is truthful and deserving, and that those who practice the things listed out in chapter 1, they do deserve to die. And yet, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul says here, do you you think that you are going to get away with this? Do you, the Jewish community in Rome, think that You know that those who practice such things deserve to die. Do you really suppose that you will get away with this? That you are somehow special enough to be exempt from the fair and balanced judgment of God? And the surprisingly bold answer of the Jews, friends, would have been, Yes, yes, we do. We do think that we have some level of community. That we're God's chosen people. We have all the benefits of the covenant, so we're safe. In fact, there were multiple examples in Jewish writings, like, like the what's called the Wisdom of Solomon, where it really expressed this sentiment and this idea really clearly. That Jews had nothing to worry about. That, that the Jews had nothing to worry about with God's judgment because they were under a covenant, so they, they can live in this type of hypocrisy. In other words, the Jews had a whole theology that supplied the energy of their, of their hypocrisy. And that theology centered around what Paul is going to say next. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So the scaffolding that held up the, the structure of the Jewish hypocrisy was this, a deceived and presumptuous understanding of God's kindness and patience and forbearance. They assumed that they could continue on in sin with immunity, assuming that while they lived in hypocrisy, the riches of God's kindness and patience was just getting flexed all the more. But what was really happening is that God was not filling up with patience, but with wrath. Listen to the next verse. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. They assumed that God was swelling up with patience and kindness, that there was nothing they had to worry about because they are under covenant. And so if I'm living in sin, if I'm living in hypocrisy, then God's just going to continue to flex his patience toward me. But Paul says... What's actually happening is that you are storing up wrath for yourself. That the Jews, like, like, a, like a tsunami, when, it, you know, when a tsunami is happening, the water on the shore just begins to go way, way out. Because out in the ocean, there's a, a wave building, building, and building. And the Jews just thought, oh, this is, this is a wonderful time to go, you know, metaphorically speaking, go poke some more anemones or go get some more shells and just enjoy this time. Look at all this shore that we can go and explore, not knowing that miles off the shore, destruction was building and building and building. So why is God's wrath building up and swelling at their hypocrisy? 
because God is righteous and fair. Listen to this. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This paragraph, friends, is the big punch of chapter 2. Paul has already laid out that, hey, you, you Jews are being hypocrite, hypocrites. You're judging people but doing the same things. The reason you're doing this is because you think that God's historical kindness and patience toward the Jewish people gives you license to sin. But here's why you're wrong. God shows no partiality. God is more righteous and fair in his judgment than the Jews had assumed, which removes their sense of protection. Paul says here that God's judgment will be doled out according to one's works, not according to one's heritage. And so he's messing up the Jewish community in Rome here. But this, this, this is a problem for the Jews. And probably they would have put forward two things that in their mind shielded them from the fair judgment of God, the law and circumcision, which Paul is going to strip away from them in the rest of chapter 2. Listen to this. For all who have sinned without the law will also, will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret men, secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Did you hear how many times he said the word law? Can you tell what he's going after here? And so Paul takes away one of, the, one of the pegs, one of the things that the Jews are trying to stand on. The Jews thought in, in Rome that because they had heard the law and possessed the decrees, that they were somehow saved, that they were somehow exempt or special. But Paul says here, you're not the only one with the law. You're not. This thing that you boast in, the law, you don't even have a monopoly on because the Gentile world, those who haven't heard the real decrees clearly and explicitly, they show that they have some semblance of the law written on their hearts. So you can't lean on this possession, on this monopoly of the law, because even Gentiles have some form of it in their very nature. So you can't say you're the only one with, that, with it. But he goes on. Even if you could boast in that, even if you could boast in that Jewish community, you don't want to. <laughs> Listen to what he says. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge, of tr knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While preaching against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit 
adultery. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, this is the, this is the knife going in. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul kind of humors them and says, okay, let's say you having the law was special and made you unique in the world. You still don't want to lean on that. You still don't want to boast in that because if you have the full law and yet break any of it, the law becomes a liability. No longer is the law something you can lean on, but actually the law becomes something that comes back and crushes you. When you boast that you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and yet then go on to break that law, not only are you removing the privilege of having that law, but you are actually blaspheming the name of God to the watching world. The law is no longer a crutch for you by a liability, so why boast in it? It's no longer something they can stand on. It actually becomes a liability for their own danger. It's kind of like it's kind of like me in high school baseball. So, I am a little brother. My older brother is three years older than me. And growing up, he was always fantastic at baseball. I was better than him at football, but baseball is really the one that I wanted to excel in. Probably that little brother spirit. And so my brother was really good and playing in high school. He was on varsity. He got almost a full ride to college, had some pro teams looking at him in college. Uh, And so when he graduated high school that next year, I was going into high school. And so I thought that I had this advantage, this privilege walking into the high school baseball team and saying, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm James Searcy's little brother and really claim that for myself and really take on the title little Searcy. But what I didn't really take into account was that uh, how much better my brother was at baseball than me. And so going into high school baseball, the more and more and more I brought up the fact that I was James's little brother, the more and more and more I let other people down. The more and more little Cersei became a liability to show how how, how much worse I was at baseball than him than it was something to lean on. And it's the same thing for the Jews here with the law. So Paul's taking away, listen, this is not something you want to, this is not a prop that you want to lean on. And he's going to take away their second thing, which is the more strange one. The Jews are leaning on circumcision for their special status with God that's going to excuse them from the fair judgment. That's what they want to do, but Paul takes that away too. Showing that circumcision is only of value if you actually obey the law. Listen to what he says. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precept of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Thanks, Justin, for giving me this text. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is one mere, merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so the Jews were using circumcision as this marker to show and remind them that they belong to God and are his covenant people. So it makes sense why they would rely on this. But Paul says 
circumcision still doesn't mean anything if you continue to break the law. In fact, he says, those dudes who are physically uncircumcised and yet keep the precepts of the law, they are more Jewish than you are. A bombshell. That whole situation down there doesn't mean a thing if you are still breaking the law. So you cannot claim that as a way of exempting yourself from the fair judgment of God. What, what, a, what a letdown. So, so this is Romans 2. This is what Paul is doing here. If I was to give you the thesis of Paul's argument and what he's doing in Romans 2 is this. The righteous judgment of God is completely and objectively impartial so that there is no advantage of one person over another that will in any way tilt the scales in their favor of God's judgment. So like I said, we've, we've done just a, a running commentary on the text, and I hope that you're still tuned in right now because, listen, take a deep breath. Now we understand Romans 2. Let's, let's lean in with some questions for us. Number one, looking at this text, one thing is clear as could be, that we have a God who exercises judgment and wrath. So question number one, what do you think of the judgment of God? This series is entitled Straight No Chaser and Justin can say that he got it from a jazz artist, but we all know what we kind of think of when we think of straight, no chaser. And if there's anything that we want to chase with something more pleasant, it is the judgment of God. Right? Earlier in Romans 2, Paul says that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But I want to ask you, do we, though? Do we know that? Do we today really know and receive that, that in our culture of autonomy and radical freedom, the judgment and wrath of God is anathema. A God who judges and exercises wrath is delegated to the unfortunate trash bin of our archaic and puritanical forefathers. To use the description that Richard Niebuhr used, our culture prefers a Christianity in which a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. But let me tell you, a God without judgment is not the good news that you are expecting it to be. Why is that? Because the judgment of God shows that we serve a God who sees. And if there's anything that we want, it's a God who sees. You do not want a God who is aloof, who is ignorant of the events of our world and of our life. We want a God who sees, and the fair judgment of God is a result of his seeing and knowing the facts, good and bad, for better or for worse, of our individual lives. God is a God who sees, and he sees with a mathematical precision down to the bottom. God will not need a research assistant when it comes to laying out judgment on that day. He will know the facts of our life. He will have known and will have seen the facts of every action, every motive, every word, 
every ambition. He will render to each one according to their works, and he will do so because he will have the objective, impartial facts of how our lives were lived. That's good news. You want a God who sees. You want a God who's impartial and operates based off of the facts. Number two, the the judgment of God, the reason why having a God without judgment is not good news is because the judgment of God shows that, yes, we have a God who sees, but we also have a God who does not suffer from bystander apathy. You know what I'm talking about there? You see a viral video and it's of some crime, it's of some violence, it's, it's, it's of something that should turn our stomachs when in fact there are people standing around recording it, doing nothing. Bystander apathy. God is not suffering from bystander apathy. God is not able or willing to simply observe the facts of our life and then not intervene and not repay. He cannot stand idly by while his world is victimized by sin and vandalized by injustice. He will not just look on. And this is good news because it shows that the judgment and wrath of God is an expression of his love. That God so loves his creation. He loves what it was meant to be. And so he stands resolutely opposed to anything that has vandalized his good world and victimized his image bearers. We should expect... Friends, we should expect that a good God will not just look on. We should expect that every victimizer will be called into account and every victim vindicated. Because he stands resolutely opposed to the vandalization and the victimization of this world, he will rectify and vindicate on that day of his wrath, on that day of impartial judgment. Listen to this from Richard Mao in his book, When the Kings Come Marching In. He talks about this day of reckoning, and it's what we all want. Thus, the sins that have been committed in political history will be publicly exposed in that holy city. God will not allow such wickedness to go unavenged. Political dictators will be led into the presence of those whom they have cast into prisons. Kings and queens will will bow low before the widows and orphans they oppressed. Cruel tyrants will hear the testimony of those they have martyred. White, racist politicians will wither under the gaze of black children. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This is what we want. As you look over into this world, as you look at look out at the landscape of our culture today and see protests, you have to know that what you are seeing is an expression of the image of God in His righteous and fair judgment. The protests of the oppressed have meaning and significance because they are tapping into how they share God's image. The cry of God's image bearers for justice and impartiality is an expression of the fact that God is just and will not let the guilty go unpunished. This is good news. But if we're honest, this is also terrible news for each and every one of us. Because none of us are victims alone. But we have participated and continue to participate in this world as victimizers. 
as perpetrators, as sharing in the vandalization of God's good world. As the author Fleming Rutledge says in her gargantuan book on the crucifixion, she says this, The problem among Jews and Gentiles alike, however, is the tendency for those who observe and comment upon wrongdoing to separate themselves from the category of ungodly perpetrator. This is the universal human way. It is our means of shoring up our dearly held conviction that we, the godly, are in a different position from the ungodly. But we're not. I mean, just think back to the list that Paul says in Romans 1, 28 through 32. Gossip, slanders, deceit, disobedient to parents, foolish, ruthless, heartless. Do any of those hit you? Do any of those nail you to the wall? I would be willing to bet they do. That each of us, in that text, our stuff gets thrown out into the open and we see just how sinful we are. That in a world of sin and violence and injustice, Our hands are just as bloody as the next person. Maybe in a different way, but bloody nonetheless. And so, the second question. What are you going to do about that? You have three options. You can outright reject it. You can say, I don't care about your God. I don't care to turn to him. He's not what I want, and I choose to continue on in my own way. As C.S. Lewis said in one spot, that there are really only two type of people in this world. Those Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. As Justin said last week, God removes his hand in an expression of his wrath and says, fine, have it your way. Or as C.S. Lewis said in another spot, that hell is locked from the inside, not from the outside. That hell is only populated by those who are resolute in their rejection. Listen, no person will ever knock on the door of heaven in faith and in hope and be rejected. The only ones cast out are those to whom God gives what they want and their rejection of him. That's option number one. And friends, it's a tragic one. Option number two, you can get afraid and then frantically start to search for something in your life to use as a tool of immunity. Just like the Jews in this text, right? That's exactly what they did. That they were. Paul knew that once he started to talk about judgment, this is where their mind is going to go. That they're going to begin to think that because they have the law and circumcision that they're going to be okay. And each of us do that. Paul knew that. Paul makes clear here, though, that God's judgment is too fair, too balanced, and too impartial, and our sin too pervasive for any of that to work. But we still try, don't we? We still do everything we can to just get better. Just get better. I can be a better person. Or we hold tightly onto social activism. Or we do all we can to live a life that we think is defined by love. Or we give money away. All wonderful things that in reality we are using to shore up that little piece of us that feels afraid and guilty before the judgment seat of God. That we are using things, these wonderful things, in order to shore ourselves up, in order that 
it might distract God a little bit on that day of judgment from seeing the rest of the junk in of our, of our lives, the ways that we have been victimizers and perpetrators. We start our frantic search for anything that might give us the advantage on that day. But friends, it won't stand. It will not hold you up. It will not keep you afloat. Nothing in this world or in you will matter. So, what's the point? The point is option number three. That the eternal Son of God entered into humanity in flesh and walked through this world of sin and violence and injustice and partook of none of it. That his hands were never bloody. He was never victimizer. He was never perpetrator. And yet, died the death of a criminal. Died the death of a perpetrator. The solution is that Jesus Christ, the only real advantaged one before the judgment of God, took the place of perpetrator on our behalf. That the only one who could really go through the judgment of God and come out on the other side completely righteous on his own merit, Jesus Christ took on the wrath of God. He took on our place and our sin as victimizer and laid under the wrath of God in order that we, the real perpetrators, the real victimizers, the real sinners, might have freedom, might stand before that judgment seat of God and say, hear from God, spotless, righteous, justified. That's the solution, friends. Listen, listen to, uh, again, Fleming Rutledge, how she says this. No one could have imagined that he would ultimately intervene by interposing himself. By becoming one of the poor who is deprived of his rights, by dying as one of those robbed of justice, God's Son submitted to the utmost extremity of humiliation, entering into total solidarity with those who are without help. Even more astonishingly, however, he underwent the helplessness and the humiliation not only for the victimizers, victimized, but also for the perpetrators. Who would have thought that the same God who passed judgment, calling down woe upon the religious establishment, would place himself under his own judgment, under his own woe? The crucifixion reveals God placing himself under his own sentence. The wrath of God was lodged in God's own self. Perfect justice wrought in the self-offering of the Son, who alone of all human beings was perfectly righteous. Therefore, no one, neither victim nor victimizer, can claim any exception from judgment on their own merits, but only on the merits of the Son. Do works matter? Absolutely. Paul makes, clear, makes that clear in this text. But as Christians, not ours. The matters for which we will be determined justified or cast out are those of Jesus Christ alone, so that we can stand before the fair judgment of God, impartial, truly objective, and say, righteous, justified. And if you're a Christian today, that is the truest reality of your life. That you stand before God, cleansed of all of your sin, that no matter the way that you have been perpetrator, no matter the way that you have been victimizer, no matter the way that you have contributed to the vandalization of God's shalom, of God's good world, you stand before God because of Jesus Christ taking your place, giving you his righteousness freely of his own choice, 
you stand justified. Listen, if you're a Christian today, this life is the closest that you'll ever get to hell. But if you're not a Christian, if you've not included yourself in Jesus Christ by faith, this life is the closest that you'll ever get to heaven. And knowing this life, what a tragedy that would be. And so I say to you, cross the line of faith. Don't drown out that sense of guilt. Don't drown out that sense of shame. Rather, admit it and run to the one that wants to heal you. Run to the one that wants to save you. Reject him no longer. He will not cast out any who come to him in hope and in faith. And he will not lose one of you if you trust in him. And so, friends, I say to you today, take seriously the judgment of God. Let it, let, it, let it rest and weigh you down a little bit to feel how far we've run from God, how much we have been a perpetrator in this world, even in this time of silence that's coming up. Let it weigh on you a little bit. And then let the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who of his own choice took your place, took on the wrath of God to save you and to justify you and let that lift you to sink to this great God who placed himself under his own sentence that you might not be afraid, that you might have hope and that you might stand on that day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your righteous judgment. Your righteous judgment is not a uh, a family history that we simply want to bury down. It is a commendable and praiseworthy attribute. And so we praise you for your righteous judgment that will one day level the playing field, that will one day call every person into account and vindicate every victim. But we also know that we are victimizers. We also know that we have contributed to this brokenness and sin. And so we praise you not just for your righteousness, but for your grace by which you have reconciled us to yourself. That you would give over your son, that your son would freely give himself up in order that we might be saved, in order that we might have the title of justified. We praise you for that. Let us feel that today and sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.